0: Like Widow versus Disney, who's the villain and why did Scarlett Johansson hire lawyers to avenge her? Professor John Guerin from Nova Southeastern University, Shepherd Broad College of Law joins us. I'm Lawrence Coletti and this is Legal Talk Today. Welcome back, listeners. Thank you for tuning in. We have a fun episode for you today. But first, we need to thank our sponsor, NODA. NOTA is powered by MT Bank because you went to law school to be a lawyer, not an accountant. Take advantage of NOTA, a no-cost IOLTA management tool that helps solo and small law firms track client funds down to the penny. Visit trustnota.com forward slash legal to learn more. And that's Nota spelled N-O-T-A. And remember, terms and conditions may apply. All right. Let's say hello to our guest, Professor John Garren from the Nova Southeastern University Shepherd Broad College of Law. Welcome to the show, sir.
1: Thank you very much. I'm happy to be here.
0: Thank you so much for joining us. Professor, just uh, kind of opening up here to establish the the bona fides, you know, you're a professor of law obviously, but you're also an author on the topic that we're going to be talking about today. So tell us a little bit about your work.
1: So I have been teaching entertainment law, intellectual property, First Amendment related courses since the early 90s. Uh, I publish a casebook, Entertainment Law and Practice. And I also publish a book for filmmakers, the Independent Filmmakers Law and Business Guide, uh, which
0: is in its third edition. And that just came out uh, earlier this month. And you're also pretty actively on LinkedIn, as I discovered, because I saw your article out there. I reached right out to you, and I think within just a few minutes, you, uh, you wrote me back saying, hey, I'd love to talk with you about this on there." So thank you so much for doing that. I'm happy to do it. Right, well, let's start just like with your students there, Professor. Let's start with just the quick facts of this case that surround uh, this, this uh, Black Widow case against uh, Disney here that we're going to be talking about with Scarlett Johansson. So just give us the quick facts, minute or less.
1: Sure. So in 2017, Scarlett Johansson entered an agreement with Marvel to produce what became the Black Widow movie. As most people know, this is part of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. There are uh, close to a dozen movies that have been made. And this movie was her starring feature that uniquely featured uh, her Black Widow character as the lead in the film. 2019, the film was made. Marvel was very happy with the film. But of course, in that time, then the pandemic hit, the theaters were shuttered. And as a result, Disney, who is the owner-exclusive parent of Marvel, uh, decided to put out the film not only theatrically, but also to release it day-in-day with its Disney Plus streaming service on its premier tier. And Johansson has made the claim that as a result of having it go out on the Disney Plus platform as well as in theaters, it has substantially reduced the box office, and that has cost her
0: tens of millions of dollars. Okay, just a quick follow up on the parties. I found this pretty interesting. You know, uh, although we do uh, media here and uh, we do podcasting, you know, sort of these the inside baseball to some of these contracts. Now, Periwinkle Entertainment is a loan out company that basically hires out uh, uh, Scarlett Johansson's acting services. So, tell us what that means. This loan out company. What is this concept?
1: Yeah, low note companies are very commonly used in the entertainment industry, and they're done for a couple different reasons. First, they allow the performer to balance out their income, which may... In- come in occasional movies uh, that are spaced apart, which has tax consequences. By having a loan-out company, the loan-out company can pay a regular salary to its employees, and the income it receives as business income can then be averaged. So it has some tax advantages. Like any corporation, it also has some limited liability advantages to help protect the individual from being dragged into court for things that she does in her professional role. So it's very common
0: that loan out companies are used. Now, Marvel was the original party to sue and obviously owned by Disney. Why not name Marvel in this lawsuit anyway? It's a very interesting structure to the litigation. They are not actually suing
1: for breach of contract. They're suing instead for claims of interference with contract tortious interference, that sort of thing, rather than bringing the breach of contract claim directly against Marvel. And likely that is a strategy to overcome the arbitration clause and other restrictions in the agreement by converting this into a tort case rather than treating it as a contract case.
0: All right, now I want to explain why Scarlett Johansson lost tens of millions of dollars here. So if you could just kind of take us through the mechanics here. You know, you've got these theatrical releases, then you have streaming and digital releases. How did the way it, I guess, how did the way it get uh, put together for COVID specifically impact uh, Scarlett Johansson?
1: So... Scarlett Johansson, as a superstar performer uh, in this contract, had a fairly unique agreement. And so she was entitled to a portion of box office receipts. Um, That is very uncommon in Hollywood, right? Only the A-plus stars are able to get that kind of agreement. But what that means is she's entitled to some portion of the income as it's received by the theaters themselves, that is different than the standard participation agreement, which would be based on the net profits, and the net profits would roll up to the producing entity from a variety of sources. As a result of the fact that she had a theatrical box office receipts agreement, when the viewership was uh, shifted from a live theater experience to the home premiere tier of Disney+. Plus, The people who are watching on Disney+, Plus are not being counted towards the impact of the movie, the popularity of the movie, and therefore she's not receiving a portion of their revenue. At least that's how it's presented in the complaint.
0: Yeah, it was already a bad enough year for uh, theatrical uh, releases because the movie theaters were primarily shut down. But even when they started opening, there was sluggish demand. So this just put a capstone in it. You know, she was going to get harmed pretty badly here on the contract. And so uh, we'll get into some of more uh, some more of the details here coming up. But uh, I wanted to talk about this term theatrical release. And it seemed like, and I, correct me if I'm wrong, Professor, it seemed like there was a little bit of flexibility in the reading of this through her complaint, just a little bit. So the, the duration of theatrical release release. It had some variance to it, but it almost suggested in a way that it was worded that there was some discretion of that on Marvel or Disney that they had there. And so they, it seemed like to me that they were really trying to jam in industry terms, meaning this is traditionally what theatrical release means. And so we're going to go back in time, When this contract was signed, this is what we meant as an industry when we said theatrical release. This is what Scarlett Johansson agreed to in her previous agreements. But what I did not see in there, uh, Professor, was a defined term in her original contract. So can you walk us through just a little bit?
1: Sure. So for you know for those uh, listeners who remember their contracts class from law school, they re- may remember the Fregolament case that talked about what is a chicken and we teach students how to interpret the word chicken even though the parties in the contract think they know what it is, they might have a different understanding of it. That's the example that we're faced with when we're looking at the meaning of the term in the contract. The contract states that the producer in its sole discretion can choose to release or not release the picture, but if it does so, the release shall be in a, quote, wide theatrical release of the picture, perens no less than 1,500 screens." So that highlights the fact that wide release is just one way of releasing a theatrical motion picture. They're defining in that paragraph that a wide theatrical release is 1,500 or greater screens, which is common in the industry, but there's no industry standards for those terms. What's not in the paragraph is the word exclusive. There is no obligation in the paragraph to have the wide theatrical release be an exclusive release. And so Disney's position uh, will certainly be that there's no language in the four corners of the contract that stopped it from doing both a wide theatrical release and a simultaneous premiere release on its streaming channel. The industry norm or custom, of course, is that for wide releases, there is a window Um, someplace between 45 and 180 days that the theatrical release is exclusive. And so Johansson's people are arguing that there is an implied term of exclusivity or for an exclusive window. This is certainly something that the movie theaters have also been arguing in their complaints about what the uh, distributors have been doing. But contractually, that assumption is not built into any of the contracts. And we had seen companies start to erode these windows as early as 2018 and 2019, around the time the contract was entered into.
0: Yeah, and that gets into that. Uh, there was quite a bit in this complaint about uh, Scarlett Johansson's attorneys asking for assurances, and they would get some some responses to this via email, and they would put these these responses in, uh, you know, just the email copy. It put it into this uh, this complaint and say, "Hey, we recognize that you're looking for some assurances. We're going to try to work something out with you." But uh, I would be surprised that a merger clause was not in the four corners of this document that they signed together. And I think this gets into the strength of Disney's case in one way, and so a. Clause for those out there that don't have a law degree. You have these clauses in contracts where what they'll do is they'll say, listen, all the conversations we've had before, whether it's, you know, phone call or in person or via email, unless it's contained within the the confines of this contract. It's not part of the deal because people negotiate their deals. Some things get in there. Some people disagree and they put it on paper and they want to sign it. This is the agreement. And a lot of these contracts, they also say, you know, we might say something after the fact via email, but unless we actually amend it in writing, it's not going to apply to this agreement. I would have a hard time believing that a contract of this size doesn't have some type of term in there. Professor, do you know otherwise? Did they have a merger clause and language to that effect?
1: We don't have any information that suggests to the contrary. And again, I think one of the reasons that they're suing for tortious interference with contract rather than a straight up breach of contract is to try and circumvent some of those protections that Marvel and through Marvel Disney has in the contract. So there's undoubtedly a merger clause as well as an arbitration clause, both of which would make this very difficult. But even if there is a merger clause... And even if we were doing this as a straight contract interpretation, there is still the open question as to whether or not the phrase wide theatrical release is clear on its face or whether industry custom traditional usage is important to the parties and therefore a court can look past the term to explain what the term means because there is an inherent ambiguity in the terms as written. So Johansson's lawyers are certainly going to argue that the wide theatrical release either has a meaning in the industry that is exclusive or that the term is at least ambiguous And if the term is ambiguous, then the statements by Marvel's general counsel that they
0: intended this to be exclusive will help Johansson's claim. All right. So we've already kind of addressed the claims that Scarlett Johansson's making here. But uh, what kind of relief is she asking for in this uh, in this complaint?
1: Well, essentially, she's asking to have the uh, money that she claims to have lost be restored and obviously those damages are a little bit speculative in terms of how much the film should have made if it hadn't gone on the premier channel there's also a way of calculating those damages by looking at how much revenue disney has earned through the premier channel and how it affected The churn rate, the number of uh, subscribers that stayed with Disney during the months that this movie was in first release because a movie like this has a strong stickiness to it. Johansson's name and likeness were used very heavily to market the movie and to market Disney Plus. So there's a lot of evidence that suggests Disney understood how valuable this property is to the streaming service, and therefore they took advantage of Johansson. So there's likely enough evidence that there were some harm and some lost. Whether the $30 million number that she asked for in relief is the correct number, that remains to be seen.
0: Yeah, I'm going to give her some props for performing her contract, even though there was a dispute here on the compensation. I mean, she went out there in good faith, you know, put her image out there. She went to these promotional events and did her part to promote Black Widow, even though there's a pretty substantial disagreement here in compensation. So, Professor, what do you think? I mean, uh, predictions hat time. You know, who wins this case? How strong is Scarlett Johansson's claim here?
1: Well, I think it's very important to understand that she's in a fairly unique position within the motion picture industry. Her contract and the statements that were made by Marvel's general counsel made it very clear that this movie was supposed to be treated very much like one of the premier Marvel movies and be supported with the same kind of wide release that Black Panther or Captain Marvel received. And so the fact that they chose to release this at this time of year, when Disney is moving back to a theatrical-only platform for movies this fall, strongly suggests that she has a claim. And so I think that there is a good chance that she will receive compensation. At the same time, I think this is truly a breach of contract case. I don't know that the tortious interference of a parent with his wholly owned subsidiary when the Parent is the distributing agent for the subsidiary makes a lot of sense. So my expectation, if I were to bet on this, is that it will be kicked into arbitration, but that she, in fact, will do very well once the arbitrator gets a hold of it.
0: And regardless of whether it uh, gets arbitrated or not, I mean, what do you think the uh, the significance here is? I mean, obviously, you know, streaming and digital releases have been cannibalizing the sales from these, uh, you know, the, these theater experiences. People just aren't going to the movie theater houses anymore in the same numbers, you know, the staying at home where, you know, you don't have to pay $12,000, you know, for a bag of MMs and you can go to the fridge anytime you want. You can hit pause and, and it, you know, it's a lot easier. I mean, frankly, it's easier for families. If you've got a lot of kids around, you know, it's easier to keep track of them in the house as opposed to at a, at a movie theater. But, uh, you know, her contract to me seemed outdated at the time, given that this has been going on for some time, you know, streaming and digital release has been slowly chipping away, you know, at the, at the movie house releases. So what do you think the significance here? Is this a watershed moment? Is this going to be some, that shot that's heard across the back, got a lot of attention now. everybody's going to be renegotiating these contracts and, uh, you know, these production, these big production houses are going to be thinking about this too.
1: It is definitely a shot at, Across the bow, but I think in a way slightly different than the arts community hopes for. This case is a reminder to the studios and distributors of how much industry consolidation has gone on in the last 10 or 15 years and sped up in the last five. And as a result, all back-end deals are creating risks for the distributors as they increasingly create content that they sell within their own network of companies to themselves. We've seen that on the television side with both Bones and Other television shows that suggest that back-end deals are really hard to predict for the studios. And so I think we're going to see a lot less money being placed on the back-end, even for superstar deals, and a different structure going forward so that the complaints that movies no longer are available to the stars for their back-end participation, that those claims just go away. We're seeing that in television today, and I think that this lawsuit will really drive down the back-end deals for films
0: as well. Well, Professor, I really enjoyed our conversation. Thank you so much for joining us today. My pleasure. Pleasure to be here. And thank you, listeners, for tuning in. We value the time you invest with us. We hope you enjoy today's episode. Also, one more thank you to our sponsor, Nota. You can find them at TrustNoda.com forward slash legal. And that's Nota spelled N-O-T-A. Thank you so much, Nota, for supporting the show. And last but never least, thank you to our team, producer Molly McDonough and our LT and audio crew. They do a marvelous job every time they're called. This has been Legal Talk today. I'm Lawrence Clutty. Have a great day, everybody.